You found the slides. Um, great. Excellent. Lord, I pray you'd add understanding to the reading of your word. Amen. The old house in Edinburgh was being renovated. Its interior stripped, the old was being thrown out to make room for the new. And into the skip out the front went all the unwanted material. But you know, this house was different. This house had a past. It had been the home of Antarctic explorer Ernest Shackleton when he was secretary of the Royal Scottish Geographic Society between 1904 and 1910. And Edinburgh Luther, that's a guitar maker, and nature conservationist Steve Burnett looked at what was being thrown away and saw a chance to make something that would be of value, something to commemorate the great explorer Shackleton. So he took some of the floorboards that had been thrown out, reached into the skip and got them, floorboards that Shackleton would probably have walked on, and gathered some driftwood from the coast, and used his vision and skill and love to make a violin, specifically to commemorate the centenary in 2022 of Shackleton's death. And on the inside are inscribed the names of all 28 of the crew of the ill-fated endurance expedition to Antarctica. The crew which Shackleton's uh, famous and incredible journey across the ice, across the open sea and the un previously unclimbed mountain range on South Georgia Island managed to save, along with a poem by Irish poet Mel McCann, celebrating the journey and the man. And you know, it would have been easy just to see those floorboards as simply rubbish, rubble of no real value. But Steve Burnett had another lens through which to view them, one of inspiration, one of hope, faith, vision and possibility. And you know, I wonder how the uh, people of Jerusalem viewed the big piles of rubbish around their city and rubble. From the constant repetition of the phrase, the walls are in ruin and the gates have been broken and burnt, which sounds like it's a curse, you get the feeling that it was a sign of disgrace, a reminder of failure, a cause for depression, and a lingering reminder of God's displeasure, of what had been. In the passage that we had read to us today from Nehemiah's journey, journal, sorry, we see that he saw the extent of the de devastation, and he carried out a realistic appraisal, but with his eyes fixed on the Lord of heaven, with eyes that could see the promises of God amidst those piles of stone could see God's preferred future amidst the ruins of the past and a sad present reality. And so was able to inspire and encourage the people to begin the work of rebuilding the walls, even in the face of the opposition it attracted. Well, at Hope Whangarei, we have a vision of not being a church in decline, but being a flourishing Christian community that is able to carry out its mission of connecting people to God and to one another in and because of Jesus Christ. 
And it's not a Pollyanna, everything's going to be all right, the future's so bright, I've just got to wear shades up high in the sky, dream. You know, we face real challenges, real issues, old earthquake-prone buildings, uh, an ageing congregation, social and cultural changes and shifts. But at the beginning of 2023, we want to refocus on this God-given vision and mission and we turn to look to God for help and to scripture, and in particular to Nehemiah, for wisdom and counsel for that process of going from vision to reality. So let's look at the text, and then we'll draw some points for us here today. So you remember the story so far. Nehemiah was a Jew in exile in Susa, the capital city of the Persian Empire, where he was cupbearer to the king. His heart, however, was focused on his people who had returned from exile to the city of Jerusalem. His brother and a group from Jerusalem tell him that the walls are in ruin and the gates are broken down and burned and the people are depressed and in dire situation. Nehemiah is moved to consistent and insistent prayer. And after four months, he goes to the king and he tells him his concerns for the place where his ancestors are buried. And the king grants his wish to go to his home city and rebuild it. And the king pledges wood and resources and letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, authorizing Nehemiah to do the work. See, these governors were not happy. Uh, and that's how our reading finished last week. And that's what leads us into our passage today. And the passage is in three sections. Uh, Nehemiah assesses the problem. He goes and looks at the wall. And then he gains the support of the people he needs to fulfill that God-given vision. And we finish with seeing that there's an increase in opposition. In verse 11, we're told that Nehemiah journeys to Jerusalem. And after he arrives, he waits three days. In the book of Ezra, we get a glimpse to the fact that the journey from Susa to Jerusalem is a long one. You see, it took Ezra four months. And he too stops and rests for three days. I think there might be, maybe there's a Jewish tradition or something there. And you get this Jesus as well, resting for three days. Or it's just common sense to give yourself a break before you jump into something new and strenuous after a long journey. And for Nehemiah, it was his first time ever in Jerusalem. And you know, it would have been an emotional time. And there would have been family and ritual things to do. So he actually gives himself the time to do that. You know, it's a spiritual thing to have enough time to have rest and to do all those other things that need to be done. And then in verse 12, we see Nehemiah sets off on his almost clandestine survey of the walls. He has a few trusted people with him. But uh, he hadn't told anything what was on his heart. And you could imagine the speculation and suspicion around the coming of a high-ranking Persian official to Jerusalem. And we're not told who these few people were either, and maybe we're arguing from silence. But, you know, maybe Nehemiah had a trusted engineer or a builder and a stonemason with him. You know, remember he had sought out Asaph, the, the keeper of the king's forest for wood. Maybe as he'd been doing his preparation, he'd also found some other key people to go with him. And he checks out the situation for himself. He does the research. 
Now, I don't know about you, but night may be an, an not the optimal time to go checking the masonry and wandering around in the midst of rubble. I mean, I could understand a moonlight stroll with the romantic view of the lights of the city, being able to stare into the eyes of the person you love. She's sitting down the back there. Uh, but, you know, I can't understand weaving and winding your way through ruin and rubble. But he did it so that he wasn't drawing any attention to what he was doing. Maybe that three days was simply very practical. He's waiting for the full moon. And scholars find it difficult to follow Nehemiah's path around the city. And there's, you know, speculation about what each of these things were, like the dragon pool, you know. Ooh. <laughs> but it was sort of possibly uh, Hezekiah's um, channel into, into a pool that was sort of wavy like a, like a serpent. And then, of course, uh, the dung gate is the southernmost gate mentioned in, in verse 13, which was used for refuge refuse and rubbish being removed into the valley below. And at one stage we're told the rubble is so bad that he has to dismount and go on foot. And there's speculation whether he goes right round the city or he has to backtrack because either it's impassable or maybe the walls to the west and the north aren't that bad. They're in good condition. And then he draws together the people, the Jews, the people who were living there, the priests, the religious leaders, the nobles, they would have been the landowners in the city and the region. And the officials, that's people who had been appointed to posts by the Persian Empire. And he speaks to them. And you know, he's really quite realistic. He understands the situation that they're in. He starts off by saying, boy, are we in trouble. But note here, Nehemiah actually identifies himself with the people. He's not an outsider sent from central government. But all the way through Nehemiah, all the way from the beginning, he sees himself as part of God's people and as a servant of God. Then he casts his vision. Let us rebuild the wall and we will no longer be in disgrace. His emphasis is not simply on infrastructure and security and on commerce and all those things, but on the fact that the walls being in ruin and the gates burnt was a sign, you know, to the people around them that just maybe their God was not able to look after his people. You know, it was a slight on God. That they were still in disgrace, that God was displeased with his people. And the Jews knew that the exile had been God's judgment on Judah for generation after generation being unfaithful to the covenant. But now Nehemiah says, you know, remember God's promise that that was only for 70 years. Now, you know, he tells them the way that God has been with him and granted him favour. You know, God is on the move. God was now wanting to restore his people and this city. And he tells them what the king had said to them. You know, God was, was with them in this endeavor. And you could see that in the way that the king had responded. And I, I even wonder if Nehemiah was standing there um, and then sort of drew back uh, a tarpaulin on the back of his ute. You know, and there was some wood from the royal forest. And he pulls out from his, his shirt, you know, uh, letters from Artaxerxes saying it's okay to build. Artaxerxes had given them permission to rebuild. Boy, that was a sign of God's favour. And in response in verse 18, we have this wonderful affirmation from the people. Let us start rebuilding. 
And so they begin the good work. They respond to the goodness and the grace of God and align themselves with the God-given vision for his people and the place where his name is worshipped. And you know, Nehemiah continues to be really realistic and his journal reflects that because, you know, this is an answer to prayer. This is an answer to Nehemiah's prayer. But he's aware that that does not mean it's an end to opposition. It doesn't mean that all the problems have gone away. It's going to be a tough job ahead. It's going to take a lot of work. And we're told that the opposition had already started and it grows. You know, we'd already heard the two names, Samballot and Tobiah. Now there's a third, Geshem of Arabia. Jerusalem seems to be surrounded by people who don't want to see the wall built for different reasons. And you know, we could dive into them, but Raymond Brown in his commentary sums it up. He says, they all have a stake in seeing Jerusalem remain in the state that it is. They were people who had so much invested in the way that it was, politically, religiously, and economically. And you know, at this stage, the opposition is simply verbal. It's ridicule. (laughs) What do you think you guys are doing? And innuendo. You know, there's that one that actually stopped the rebuilding before. Are you guys rebelling against the king? And Nehemiah's response is not to push back, but rather to point to his trust and his faith in God. He says, the God of heaven will give us success as we start to rebuild. And to point to the word of God. You know, God has promised the land and the city and to restore this to the people of the Jews, not to these other people. That's why he knows he can continue with building the wall. Okay, well, how does it apply that? Apply to us here and now. Well, firstly, when we talk of vision and mission, uh, you need to start with reality. Nehemiah goes and looks at the walls himself. And he sees what the situation is. And his assessment is summed up in that not very uh, encouraging uh, phrase. You see the problem we have? For change and renewal to happen, we need to be aware of the problem we have. We need to be aware of the things, the way things are. If you want to get over addiction, you need to admit you're an addict. If you want things to get better, you need to admit that they're not good the way that they are. And I hate this graphic that I'm behind me. Uh, I've updated it since uh, I presented it uh, to the 2019 church AGM. You see, because we are a church in decline. And historically, there are reasons for that, internal ones and external ones, sad reasons, just getting things wrong reasons, which we don't need to go into now. But this is not the graph of a flourishing Christian community. And uh, the the bits in orange there, they're an indicator of children, or sorry, if you're a teenager, uh, people under 18. And um, it shows, you know, it actually, that shows a a rise in the average age as well. We're an ageing congregation. You know, like many churches, that decline in the number of children also shows the moving away of people in the family demographics in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and even 50s. And you know, I probably don't have to tell you that we're an ageing congregation. For many of you, when you wake up in the morning and there's that new ache or pain, you're aware of it. 
Well, like me, there's an increased number of pills you have to take each morning. You're aware of it. And we know where a lot of our people have gone. At a staff meeting, even just this week, someone made the comment, boy, have we had a lot of funerals. And many of you also have grief as you've watched people you love and you've served alongside simply leave and go elsewhere. And COVID, you know, hasn't helped either. And most mainline churches are having the same issues. And there's a lot of cultural and social things that are part of that. And it means it's harder to get people to do the volunteer work that is needed just to keep everything going just the way it is. And add to that the fact that we wrestle with keeping our budgets in positive, maintaining old buildings and increased costs. And you know, we may not have felt the Christchurch earthquake up here, but we're still wrestling with its aftershocks. Boy, are we feeling it. And we can't continue to live beyond our means. And I wonder how you feel about those statistics and what you think about that. And look, this isn't a you-must-work-harder kind of message. It's not. But it's also very easy to simply focus on, boy, have we got a problem. And maybe to rationalise it with, oh, well, it's just the way it is. Or as long as you don't change things too much, I'm actually quite comfortable. We'll get by. It's not all doom and gloom. There are actually some great positives. I was talking with Emma Kewen, the Presbytery Mission Enabler, and casually mentioned that we'd had six adult baptisms in the last year and a bit. And she quickly jumped in and says, What? You know, that's not normal. That's uh, extraordinary in the Presbyterian Church. (laughs) And there have been many others who have joined the church as well. And that's exciting. It's a glimpse of the future. I don't share this to be a downer. Rather, we do need to stop and look and see where we are. But we need to look at the ruins, if I may say that, with the eyes of faith. That's where we are. But we have a God-given vision to be a flourishing Christian community, fulfilling our vision of connecting people with God and with one another. We have goals which we're working towards of being intergenerational, supporting and equipping each other and being active in the wider community. And we see some of those things starting to happen. And like with Nehemiah, what makes that achievable? What allows us to turn it around, to stop it being something that would just is depressing, is the power and sovereignty, the grace and goodness, the with usness and for usness, if there are such words, of God. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is with us. When the people heard of God's gracious hand acting and understood, it wasn't simply about them having their own security or comfort, but realizing that it had to do with upholding God's goodness and God's name amidst the, the of neighbours and people who opposed and ridiculed their faith, they reacted and agreed to rebuild. People, our God is real. Our God is with us and for us. The King of heaven is alive and active. Our God calls us into his preferred future and is with us and enables and resources us through the Holy Spirit.
but it came to a stage where the people actually had to catch the vision. They had to buy into it. There came that moment when they said, let us start rebuilding. And we need too need to come to that moment of saying, we're all in. We catch the vision that this is what God is calling us to. Yes, there's opposition. Yes, there's difficulty. Yes, it's not going to be easy, but Nehemiah's answer is helpful for us individually and corporately as a church. The God of heaven will give us success as we, his servants, start to do the work he has called us to do. And we focus our energies and our prayer and our activity and our resources to that vision becoming a reality. We need to buy in and say, yes, we will rebuild. And I want to finish with two quick encouraging thoughts. Our New Testament reading today was the feeding of the 5,000. And the disciples became aware of the needs of the crowd around them, that they were hungry and there was nowhere to get food. So we might as well send them away on a, a long journey. Because out here in the wilderness, there's no kebab shop, no fat camel. And I know I'm not getting sponsorship, although it would be a good idea. No KFC, no McD's out here in the wilderness. How will we feed these people? How will we meet their needs? How will we minister to them? Remember, mission and vision starts with compassion for people. And Jesus' response is very challenging. Well, why don't you feed them? What? It'll bankrupt us. And then Jesus says, what have you got? What have you got in your hands? And they say, we've got five loaves and a couple of fish. They're fishermen. There's always a couple of fish. And uh, Jesus takes that and he blesses it. And he feeds everybody with more left over. It's a principle. We start with what we've got in our hands. Where we are now. And we hand that over to God. And we say, yes, we will rebuild. And we see that God can take that and use it to meet the needs of the people about us and more. By the way, this mosaic of the fish and the bread is a great example of beauty rising from, the, from rubble. It comes from a church that was built in the 5th century in Tagba. Sorry, I hope I've said that right. Uh, which is to the north of the Sea of Galilee, which people say just might in actual fact be the place where Jesus did the miracle of feeding the 5,000. And that church was destroyed in the 6th century. And again, in the 20th century, somebody tried to burn it down when they rebuilt it. And it lay in ruins until the early 20th century where they discovered it and they restored it. And this uh, mosaic, this beautiful mosaic, suddenly became visible again and was restored. Beauty from rubble. And we started looking at, some, at how someone with vision and imagination and hope and skill looks at you know, the old wooden floorboards that were being thrown out that were just sticking out the top of a skip and turn them to, into what is known as the Shackleton violin. And you go, on, go online and some of Shackleton's descendants have in actual fact written music using this violin. It's a piece of art. It's a musical instrument. It's a fitting tribute. It's something beautiful. And you know, when I see it, I can't help but think of that line in St. Brendan's prayer, 
that I concluded my sermon with two weeks ago, and Hugh and Noella, thank you very much for doing that, incorporated into our prayers for others last week. Tune my spirit to the music of heaven. Amen? Yeah. Let's just be silent for a moment. What is God asking 